0: Hello and welcome to the first episode of The Rep, Rugby's Economic Podcast. This is the show that looks at the socio-economic factors that impact the game we love, turning the floodlights on the challenges rugby faces as a global sport and discusses how they might be tackled. I'm Felix McCabe, an aspiring Ala Cadu from Ireland who didn't discover rugby until his teens, but since then I've been full-on rugby knows, flying the blue of Leinster or green of Ireland wherever they'd let me. In the past year, we've all been affected by the global pandemic, but sports especially have been hit hard. This got me thinking about the global game, and I've come to the conclusion that you know what? Rugby's fucked. So you've got a global game that's not really that global, with an outdated caste system dividing the original nations versus the emerging ones, and no single place to watch it on the TV, because the cake's been cut up so many ways by desperate broadcast deals to get some monies into the coffers to keep the whole thing afloat. Oh, and you've got a looming lawsuit of ex-players versus the governing body over the safety of the game. The more I looked into what was happening, the worse it seemed to get. But I'm actually an optimist. So in this show we're going to talk about what those opportunities are, where rugby can come out fighting and how this game can evolve for better. But if we're going to talk about where rugby is going, we need to first understand where it's been. So for this episode we're going to delve into how rugby began and meander our way back to the present day. The invention of the ball was as important as the invention of the wheel, a pig's bladder encased in leather, stitched and inflated by mouth. Humans are communal animals, and it's in our nature to group together and to compete. The invention of the ball, and sport as a result, was a way of allowing us to continue to compete, especially now that we had agriculture and didn't need to hunt as much. In fact, hunting developed as a sport. Common man worked the land and didn't have time for recreation, it was about survival. Wealthy landowners and lords tended to business and in their free time used sport to blow off steam. The noble Briton played cards, enjoyed horse racing and cricket, and anything that allowed them to gamble on the outcome. The aristocracy used their wealth to send their kids to private schools to be educated, where they would learn the foundations that would see them fit to run the empire in the future. These schools included the famous private schools of Eton and Harrow, and organised sports were part of that schooling teaching these boys discipline, respect, teamwork and camaraderie. Sport is a reflection of you as a person, how you conduct yourself and the values you hold. In rugby school, located in the heart of England's East Midlands, team sports were a must. Rugby school was first famous sports headmaster, Thomas Arnold, whose love for sports saw him use it as a way of teaching the young gentlemen of the empire about the values of life and God. This became known as muscular Christianity or athletic chivalry and saw the students of rugby school take part in all forms of organised sport. An easy favourite was the game of football, an early form of soccer. In these days you could hack the ball and your fellow players and all to get a rougher sport than today's modern equivalent. Here the legend begins when allegedly a young student named William Ebelis caught and ran with the football in his hands and scored a goal. There have been many arguments on whether this actually occurred, or whether this is a simplistic ruse created later on to validate the ownership of the game as belonging to the upper classes of society. In any event, what we know for sure is that William Webb Ellis did go to rugby school around this time, and that the addition of running with the ball had developed there. So what of the common man during this time? Still working away of course, but that was about to change. We had the Industrial Revolution which came at the birth of the invention of the steam engine. This allowed for machines to build other machines, and soon factories were on the go. These factories were set up in big industrial towns like Manchester, and overnight became cities. We saw an influx of workers into these new cities from the neighbouring countryside. This created another problem for Britain, but we'll discuss that maybe in a later episode. In the factories, the new city slicker could earn more money which saw the emergence of a middle class. For the first time, the common man had more money than he needed to cover the basics required for living. However, he still had one problem. He had no time to do anything with that extra cash. This was about to change with the emergence of the weekend. Oh, this is a skip pass, Each episode we're going to go slightly off topic and dig something economic out of the ruck for a phase or two, a free kick of sorts to let us catch our breaths before sprinting to continue play. This week we've been offered the weekend as our skip past topic, let's take a punt. In the 18th century with men filling the factories and their boots with some spare cash, the only chance they could spend some of it was of a Sunday, the traditional day off for church and all religious matters. Now... Far be it for us to comment on the moral standing of the 18th century Britain but the history books tell us that many soon found the lure of the tavern and similar establishments much more inviting than the church. To be fair there's not many of us who would trade the warm snug and creamy pint for that cold church pew. I'm sure the man of the day told his wife as we've all done that he was going out for one and he'd be back shortly but life's rarely that simple. Sure enough he spent the evening indulging and woke up for work with a head in him. Without the comfort or convenience of the breakfast roll, not to be invented until another moment of economic progression in the 1990s, known as the Celtic Tiger, he had to pull himself together and face a hungover day at work in the factory. A switch play here. The phenomenon known as the breakfast roll was popularised during this time of economic growth in Ireland, spurred on by a booming construction sector and immortalised by Irish comedian Pat Short in his iconic ballad, Jumbo Breakfast Roll. I'd reckon you give that a listen. This was so iconic that it beat Shakira's Hips Don't Lie off the top of the Irish charts for six weeks running. A bit ironic considering that you'd have a solid pair of hips on you if you ate enough of those breakfast rolls. Anyway, back to our hungover Britain. At least he showed up for work. Many of his mates didn't bother. This became a consistent team in industrial England and started to affect the productivity of the factories themselves. The decision was made to give the workers a half day on Saturday, ensuring that they'd arrive ready for work on Monday, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. And thus, the weekend was born. It wasn't until the 1920s and 30s that Saturday was completely liberated, popularised by our good friend Henry Ford. Let's return to play. The emergence of the weekend gave the working class the opportunity to play sports. They started to form clubs, like the upper classes, and play football matches against rival clubs from the area. Sport became a phenomenon, but disputes started to arise over the rules of the game. In 1863, the leaders of the top clubs met to agree a consistent set of rules to govern the game. The final result was the removal of handling and hacking the ball, which didn't sit well with some of the clubs. They preferred rugby school's version of football. They broke away to form the Rugby Football Union with the rest having formed the football association. We now had football and rugby. Football required you to be fit and fast. Rugby was a game you could play with a modest amount of skill. Clubs sprung up everywhere in England, and with the invention of trains, matches could be organised up and down the country. Before this, clubs were the exclusive domain of the elite, who gathered at the weekend to relive their school glories through playing rugby. It was purely for fun. In the industrial north of England, the game of rugby was different. The factory and the coal mine workers were hard. They lived hard lives. They played hard rugby. Football was equally as popular there and reached new heights with the introduction of the FA Cup in 1871. The FA Cup was a game changer. Fans flocked in their thousands to see the game, becoming so popular that teams would do anything to win it. This resulted in players receiving payments and sidebars, to play for certain teams, funded from the income generated by the large clouds. In a matter of years, football had completely turned professional. This had a huge knock-on effect in England. Football grew exponentially and the RFU were scared. This was, in their opinion, exactly what happens when you let the working class dominate the game. The class divide was obvious and friction ensued. In the normal day-to-day, The two classes wouldn't come into contact with each other. But on the pitch, especially in the scrum, they couldn't avoid it. They could be got. The thoughts of being manhandled or shown up on the rugby pitch was just unacceptable for the upper classes. A culture war of sorts was brewing between the elite amateurs who wanted to keep the game strictly for fun and the working classes who were increasingly looking for payment to play the game. The disconnected London-based RFU refused anything that even resembled professionalism, and wholeheartedly rejected payments to players. In the 1890s, the RFU went as far as to ban all kinds of payment to players, with anybody found to be breaching these rules banned from playing the game for life. It's a bit harsh. This was unacceptable to the northern working class clubs, who frequently had to miss work to play. As a compromise, the northern clubs petitioned the RFU for an allowance called the Broken Time Payment, to compensate the lost wages. The RFU rejected. The failure to concede on this point cost the RFU dearly. In the summer of 1895, 22 clubs in the north of England decided to leave the union and form their own Northern Union, which would openly pay players. Rugby had been split in two, across class and geographical lines. Rugby league had been born. So there we have it. From the legend of William Webb Ellis, our beloved game was born. Distinguished from football by the ability to handle the ball, it was fraught with the class culture war between the tops and the working classes from the outset. Ultimately, the decision to maintain it as a strictly amateur sport divided the game forevermore, creating two sports, league and union. At the time, it suited the elite to maintain the prestige of the game they saw as theirs. Rugby was for the classes, not the masses. Looking back, we can see that this was a really poor decision professionalism propelled football to the stratosphere and rugby was never able to catch up again. Next time on The Rep, we're going to explore how rugby became the first global game used as a tool for the British Empire to instill Britishness across the colonies. We'll look at the countries who adopted the game and those who kind of rejected it. So until then don't forget to subscribe to have future episodes delivered directly to wherever you get your podcasts from. And if you can, give us a rating or a review and share with your rugger bugger mates. Go well.